Let's pray. Father, we need your help that we would see the things in our passage tonight that you would have us to see. Lord, thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for what you have shown us thus far in it about yourself, about your plan for the world, about how you intend to use your people to accomplish that plan. Thank you for what it shows us about Jesus and about his church. Thank you for what it has shown us about the Holy Spirit who is in us. And I pray that as we conclude it tonight, that we will have a clearer picture of our role as witnesses in your world uh, to accomplish what you have sovereignly ordained to bring about. So please encourage us with that and help us to apply it correctly. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are going to <clears throat> be back in the book of Acts tonight. We're going to uh, finish this series in this book. And so go ahead and please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. If you're using a Bible from the room here, Acts 27 starts on page 801. Page 801. There's really only one main truth that I think is um, fitting, is a fitting emphasis for this passage. So, uh, as I even was working through it to try to develop uh, this message, it, if it almost was. It almost really needed only one main point, and and all the main. If I was going to make multiple main points, they really all were about the same, uh, just shown in different ways. But the main, really uh, biblically irrefutable truth that comes through this section of scripture tonight, is that God is absolutely, completely, totally sovereign in all things, in everything. Now. Uh, there are there. I say biblically irrefutable because um, if you really believe from the Bible that God is God, then you kind of have to believe that God is sovereign, meaning that He has ultimate authority, He has final control, that he, that what He says goes, and that that everything that happens happens because He brings it about. You really kind of have to believe that if you if you really want to line up with the the Bible. So, so that point is not, as far as we're concerned tonight, up for debate. What could be debated, and probably what we should think about as far as how to apply this passage, would be how are we going to respond to the fact that God is sovereign? Because there's a couple of attitudes that people could have toward it. So if you think to yourself, well, God is sovereign, therefore um, nothing that I do really matters. Or maybe you think that God is sovereign, and so I feel like God is out to get me, and so all the bad things that happen in my life is God's sovereign way of picking on me or making me miserable. That could be one way to look at the, the, the negative things that come into our lives. The other way, and I would think the more correct way to think about this, would be to say something like, God is sovereign, and so therefore... All of the things that happen in my life that I wouldn't choose for myself, I must believe that God 
is bringing those into my life because he knows better than I do what my life actually needs. So you have another passage there on your bulletin insert. And it is something that Paul, who's kind of the main character in these last chapters of Acts, something that he wrote in a letter to the Corinthians about some of the ways that he recognized the sovereignty of God uh, in his own difficult circumstances. So I just want to, as quickly as possible, kind of read, maybe even just skim through this, um, these couple of paragraphs here from 2 Corinthians 11, so you can look at it there. Like I said, it's on your handout. He says, Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts, uh, puts on air, strikes you in the face. Um, so, so his point there is, you all, you all have lots to boast about, he's, and he's, he's getting to the point that I also have lots to boast about, and, but the things that he boasts in are really pretty abnormal. So here's how he explains this. Uh, verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger false brothers. Toil, hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So this is his own personal testimony, personal recap of some of the things that God had sovereignly put into Paul's life. Probably none of them Paul would have chosen for himself. Certainly, none of those I would choose for myself. And yet, and, and yet um, we know from what we've seen of Paul's life and from his writings that his point in bringing all this up is to show that this is God's plan and therefore I must believe that what he's bringing about is better than anything I would cause to happen in my own life. That's his view of God's sovereignty. So, that being kind of our... Our introduction. We're going to notice how some of the things that are listed here are true of Paul in our passage tonight. So you have a, a bulletin, I think, and a and something to write with. So uh, you'll want to fill in these four points as we go. These four points are simply meant to support that main uh, emphasis for tonight: that God is sovereign and that that He's going to accomplish what He intends in our lives, but also ultimately in the world. Here's the first point, and, and I think all of chapter 27 makes this point. God is sovereign in that He will get His people where He needs them to be. God will get His people where He needs them to be. Now, I want you, if you can, to think back to the last couple of times we've looked at Acts. Where is it... Uh, both that apparently God wants Paul to be, and Paul is eager to get there himself. He's trying to get to, to Rome. Yeah, that's exactly right. He has uh, been on trial in front of the Jewish people, and, and he has 
he has uh, defended himself, defended his innocence, saying the only thing I've done is believe the, the Old Testament that says that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And uh, so they're, they're like, well, we're not okay with that, but you haven't really broken any other laws. So Paul's like, look, I, just, I appeal to Caesar. If I'm going to be on trial, I want to go to the highest trial. Send me to Caesar. Caesar's in Rome. He's trying to get to Rome. So they, they, they put him on a ship. If you look at chapter 27 and verse 1, uh, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, because Rome is in Italy, they, uh, and notice uh, Luke is the one who's writing this. He's using the we because he's apparently along with Paul on this journey. We should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul, some other prisoners, to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So they, they, uh, they embark on a ship. They put to sea. Uh, verse 3 says, They put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. Uh, you continue to read, and so much of this chapter uh, is a recap of the difficulties that they faced while on their journey, their sea, their journey by sea to Rome. So, when you reference back in Second Corinthians eleven about being shipwrecked, spending days and nights at sea, frequent journey, dangers from waters. Um, now, Paul wrote that probably before this event happened, but it's it, he's probably thinking to himself, here we go again. Here are more of these kinds of trials. Um, there's, some, there's some interesting um, conversations that happen along the way. So um, let's look down um, at verse 9, chapter 27, verse 9. Much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous. Because even the fast was already over. So they're at a certain point in the year where sailing was dangerous because of weather. So Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive the voyage, the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so they, so they continue to sail on, even, even against this advice. And so you have a... Um, paragraph or so there where things are pretty bleak. You go down to verse um, 18, and Luke says, Since we were violent, violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Things, things are pretty bleak. Things, it is looking like everybody on the ship is going to die at sea. And yet, what has God, what has God promised Paul? I'm going to get you to Rome. So as bad as things are at sea... Something's got to give. Either God's promise is going to fail and they're going to drown at sea, which is really how it appears, or God is somehow going to preserve at least Paul's life so he can get them to where he has promised that he will go. Verse 21 mentions uh, this. He says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. 
For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have, found, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. All right? So recognize there Paul's mindset. They're at sea. Every indication, I mean, the previous paragraph said all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They don't expect to survive this. But God shows up to Paul at night and says, you must stand before Caesar, and not only will you make it, everybody on your ship is going to be saved. All right? So Paul has a choice. He, he can either believe God or he can believe his circumstances. And what does he encourage all the others to do? Believe God. Right? Things are going to be bad for the ship. He says we're going to lose the ship, but we're all going to uh, be saved. If you look, and we'll again go through most of this um, quickly. If you look, in fact, let's just go all the way to um, verse um, 41. So Acts 27, 41. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. All right? Who's one of the prisoners? Paul is. And, and so the soldiers are thinking, uh, we can't let these guys go free. It's a shipwreck. We're going to lose the ship. Everybody's going to be on their own. Some of these prisoners might escape. Let's just go ahead and kill them. Okay? If they kill Paul, where doesn't he get to? He doesn't get to Rome, right? So something's going to have to intervene again. And look how it happens. Verse 43. The centurion... Wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that how many? All of them were brought safely to land. They all were brought safely to land. So, in spite of of all of these humanly impossible circumstances, God had said, I'm going to bring Paul before Caesar, and so he will get his people where he needs them to be. Now, here, here, would, be a, here would be a wrong way to apply this, I think. Um, let's say you have really high ambitions of ending up somewhere in your life that, um, you know, that, that would be something like just a hope, Okay. Uh, for example, you know, I don't know, I, I hope to move to Hollywood and be a successful actor, okay? Or I hope to win American Idol, or I hope to be a professional athlete, okay? Something like that. Something that wouldn't be, say, like wrong or sinful. You would hope to accomplish it. Maybe you're even going to work to accomplish it. Is, God, is this passage uh, indicating that God will get us anywhere we believe we can get? It's not really saying that at all. It's saying that where God wants us, he's going to get there. So this is not a promise that like, oh, if I just believe God enough, he can get me wherever I want to go. I don't really think that's, that that's the point. All right? God will get us where he wants us to go. 
He wanted Paul to go to Rome. He made a way for him to get to Rome. If God wants us to be in a certain place, He will get us to that place. That's number one. The last three are in the last chapter 28. So, here's number two. God is sovereign in that He will preserve His people until He is finished with them. This goes right along with point number one. But He will preserve His people until He is finished with them. Once they get to land, verse 20, uh, chapter 28 and verse 1 it says that we were brought safely through. We learned that the island where they shipwrecked on was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. Paul gathered a bundle of sticks, uh, put them on a fire, and a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. All right, think just for a second at, I guess, the irony of their two opinions. First, they say Paul was a murderer. Um, somewhat true, like Paul apparently actually had a murderous history, right? But he's not, he's not a prisoner now because he's committed murder, right? So their logic is flawed. He's, he's not being punished for his, you know, for being a murderer. Uh, he's, and, and yet he didn't die from the snake bite. So now what are they saying about him? He's not a murderer. He must be a, a god. All right, are they, are they correct about that? Again, no. So they have these like one extreme or the other examples. Um, and yet I think the point that, that is being made here is simply that God still had to get Paul where he wanted him. And so Paul wasn't going to die either from the shipwreck or from a snake bite. Neither one was going to kill him. Again, all these circumstances that would be harmful for most people. God was preserving Paul through that. Now again, I think a wrong way to apply this would be to say uh, that you know, I can put myself into dangerous situations or I can play with poisonous snakes or you know, any other sort of thing and, and God will preserve me. What? Break out the snake. Break out the snake handling, right? Um, please no. But... So, so again, I think, I think the wrong application would be to, to um, toe the line of stupidity, let's say, because Paul's not doing that. Um, but it also, it also would be wrong just to assume that any sort of, um, we could say, sickness or injury, you know, that, that God is going to automatically heal us from those things. The point, again, is just that God will keep us alive until He's finished with us. We don't know when God's going to be finished with us. Maybe somebody in here will die from a snake bite. I don't know. I can't promise if you get bitten by a, ven a venomous snake that you won't die. Uh, but I do know that you will not die until God is finished with you. And that's a great comfort that our lives are not in our hands, they are in His hands. That's the second evidence of God's sovereignty. Here's number three. The third evidence of God's sovereignty is that God will 
use his church to encourage his people and further his mission. God will use his church to encourage his people and to further his mission. Go to, go to uh, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. Um, go to verse uh, 13. From there, we made a circuit, arrived at Regium. After uh, one day, a south wind sprang up. On the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. They made it. And verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So what is it, when Paul gets to Rome, what is it that meets him there? Who is it that meets him there and immediately encourages him and Paul thanks God for them? Who is it? It is other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. You could say it's the church at Rome. Paul's greatest encouragement in that moment was that there were fellow believers in Christ who cared for him, who encouraged him, um, who wanted to hear about how he was doing. If you continue reading, starting in verse 17, uh, he brings together local uh, leaders of the Jews, and and he, he recaps for them the trials that he had uh, in front of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem about his appeal to Caesar. Um, the, the brothers uh, converse with him about this. In fact, if you look at verse 21, this is their reply to his uh, testimony. They said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So these, these are, I would say, some believers. These are some just Jewish, probably skeptics. But they want to know from Paul more about what it is he claims to believe. And so in that, the believers there are caring for him, and Paul's mission is being furthered because there are unbelievers who get to hear this gospel. Which brings us to the fourth point of God's sovereignty. Here it is. Number four. God is sovereign in that he will send his message of salvation where he wants it to go. And he wants it to go to all the nations of the earth. And God will send his message there. This is evidenced in the passage, but we also see it in practice today. So look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So the ones who met with him before apparently went back and invited others. Greater numbers came. And look at what happened. Verse 23. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And here's apparently the statement he made. 
the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and he begins to, he begins to read or quote from Isaiah 6 that we read earlier, Go to this people and say that you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now that's kind of a mostly convoluted sort of passage if you just read it straightforwardly, but I think the point is that there are certain hearers of the message of God who will receive it, and there are certain ones who won't. And for those who won't, God shuts up their ears, and there are others whose, whose ears God opens, and that in both of those things, God is the one in control of it. So think about if you have had your ears and eyes open so that you understand the message of God, who is it that opened your eyes and ears? To understand. God did. So how kind of God that he would do that for us because Isaiah says he doesn't do that for everybody. There are some people's ears he shuts up and some people's eyes that he closes so that they can't believe this. They don't believe this. Now, it's interesting though that even in that Paul is apparently comforted. He's not frustrated by that. He's comforted by it. Here's how I know. Because verse 28 says, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will what? They will listen. Okay, that's, that's pretty fascinating, actually. Paul knows that when the message of salvation is preached to the Gentiles, some of them will listen. They will listen. God is intended for this message to go to them, so he's confidently going to share it with them because God is going to open some of their eyes and he's going to unclog some of their ears so that they can hear these things and see these things and believe these things. And so what, what does he do? How does he live out his days? Verse 30 says that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, you and I have really no control over other people's... We can't, we can't force other people to believe, right? Right? We can't, um, we can't control someone's response to the gospel. But we can certainly control how we share the gospel, right? Uh, and that's, that's the way that we will be most obedient. Now, knowing that God is sovereign in these things, knowing that He will fulfill all these promises, we can pray pretty confidently for how He wants us to use us in that regard. So the way I want to conclude here is that I've asked a few different people, and I, th I think and I hope they're all prepared, um, to lead us in prayer for the peoples of the earth. But the way I want to do this is kind of, um, it, might, it might sound sort of odd to this, because it's not all going to be in English. So we have, um, we have, a, we have a multilingual uh, congregation here. And so I've asked, um, I've asked uh, four other folks, and you guys can go ahead and come on up, and they're going to pray, they're going to lead us in prayer, 
Um, and they're each going to pray in a different language, and they're each going to pray for a different um, part of the world, a different, a different group of people on the earth um, for the salvation among those people. So after they have prayed, uh, I will come and I will conclude us in, in English. Okay? So let's all pray together. Uh, what you understand of this is between you and the Lord, I guess. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to make an effort to pray through these things together.